Welcome to the weekend edition of I Must Discuss. And today, I must discuss a lot of headlines. Elton John, Prince Harry are among a group of big names in the UK suing the parent company of the Daily Mail. We've got three celebrity couples who appear to be on the road to Splitsville. And lastly, we're talking movies. I have an update on the Black Panther sequel, the James Bond franchise, and a review of Hocus Pocus 2. Shall we begin? I'd say so. Let's go. We're headed across the pond for our lead story this weekend. Prince Harry and Elton John are among a list of celebrities and public figures who have had enough, I tell you. They are taking legal action against Associated Newspapers, the parent company of The Daily Mail, The Mail on Sunday, and Mail Online. Now, I'm reading a report from the BBC. The Duke of Sussex... Baroness Doreen Lawrence and actresses Sadie Frost and Elizabeth Hurley have also filed cases against Associated Newspapers LTD. The company's alleged activity includes having listening devices secretly placed inside people's cars and homes. A spokesman for ANL described the allegations as preposterous smears. Now, when I saw the headlines about this lawsuit, I was, I'm like, I'm confused because I thought Prince Harry had already sued these people. And that is actually correct. He has right now a separate lawsuit that is still going on for a story they ran about his fight to have security from the Metropolitan Police while he and his family visit the UK. Now, here is the list of people suing Associated Newspapers. It's Prince Harry... Elton John, Elton John's husband, David Furnish, actress Sadie Frost, who is the ex-wife of Jude Law, actress Elizabeth Hurley, and Baroness Doreen Lawrence. And I was like, who is this woman? Okay, and I'm going to talk about her more in a minute because I never heard her, right? But she's among these people, these very high-profile people filing a lawsuit against the Daily Mail's parent company. So I'm like, I got to look into her and I'm going to get really deep into her in a bit. Variety had more details. The group claimed they have been the victims of abhorrent criminal activity and gross breaches of privacy by Associated Newspapers, according to a press release from law firm Hamlin's, which is representing Prince Harry and Sadie Frost. John Furnish, Hurley, and Baroness Lawrence are repped by law firm Gunnar Cook. Court records show three separate lawsuits citing, quote, misuse of private information were filed against Associated in London's High Court on October 6th by Gunnar Cook on behalf of its clients. Prince Harry and Frost's lawsuits have yet to appear in court records, but Hamlin said that legal action has been launched. 
Among the allegations, the group claimed that Associated hired private investigators to bug their cars and homes, hired people to listen into their telephone conversations, paid police for inside information, impersonated staff at hospitals and clinics to obtain information, and accessed bank accounts and financial transactions through illicit means and manipulation. A spokesperson for Associated Newspapers told Variety, Quote, we utterly and unambiguously refute these preposterous smears, which appear to be nothing more than a pre-planned and orchestrated attempt to drag the male titles into the phone hacking scandal concerning articles up to 30 years old. These unsubstantiated and highly defamatory claims, based on no credible evidence, appear to be simply a fishing expedition by claimants and their lawyers, some of whom have already pursued cases elsewhere. End quote. On Twitter, a private investigator named Gavin Burroughs says he's helping the plaintiffs in this lawsuit. In the past, Burroughs says he was hired by media outlets to investigate public figures. He tweeted on Thursday, quote, I owned up and assisted all parties in the action they are now bringing by being honest about what I was involved in regarding said parties. I signed witness statements, ticked spreadsheets, and owned up. Then someone responded to his tweet asking, will you take accountability or are you just getting off with a slap on the wrist and a check? And Burroughs responded, I think I have taken accountability by owning up to it and to assist in the action that's now being brought. And no, I have not been paid. Thank you. End quote. Now, Burroughs isn't just some rando on Twitter impersonating someone. He, this is actually the guy. He was also featured last year in a documentary called The Princes in the Press, where he talked about how he spied on Chelsea Davey, who was one of Prince Harry's ex-girlfriends. I now want to turn your attention to talk about Baroness Doreen Lawrence of Clarendon. She became a Baroness in 2013 in the Commonwealth realm of Jamaica, where she was born. She was also appointed to the Order of the British Empire in 2003, which is a really big honor over there. So, you know, who is this, you know, Black British woman? So, back in 1993, her 19-year-old son, Stephen, was stabbed to death at a bus stop in Southeast London by a gang of white youths. I'm quoting The Independent, which is another UK newspaper. In 1994, the year after Stephen's death, the Crown Prosecution Service said there was insufficient evidence to bring a prosecution against Neil Acourt, Jamie Acourt, Gary Dobson, Luke Knight, and David Norris. Now, those are the men who were accused of killing 19-year-old Stephen. Five months later, in September that year, Stephen's parents unsuccessfully attempted their own private prosecution against Dobson, Knight, and Neil Acourt, which was eventually thrown out. Dobson and Norris were eventually found guilty of the aspiring architect's murder in January 2012, almost 19 years later. 19 years after her son was killed to get some measure of justice. The remaining three suspects originally questioned deny involvement. Acourt and Norris were also both jailed for 18 months in 2002 over an unrelated racist attack on an off-duty Black policeman, Gareth Reed. 
And while the Lawrence family lobbied for accountability for those responsible for Stephen's murder, their home was spied on by undercover officers. I think this bears repeating, so I'm going to run this back to you one more time. While the Lawrence family lobbied for accountability for those responsible for Stephen's murder, their home was spied upon by undercover officers. Now I'm pausing here to explain this situation. And I'm quoting an, another article from The Independent which explains this undercover officer spying operation. Quote, the undercover policing inquiry is one of the most complicated, expensive, and delayed public inquiries in British legal history. At its heart is a series of very serious allegations of systematic abuses by undercover policing units developed over 40 years. It was officially set up in 2015 by the then Home Secretary, Theresa May, after a series of allegations that she said amounted to evidence of, quote, historical failings. The first is the Metropolitan Police's Special Demonstration Squad. It had its genesis in the late 1960s when Scotland Yard began investigating groups protesting against the Vietnam War. Quote, it evolved to run operations into a wide range of political groups, causes, and movements, most of which were on the left of politics. The second unit, the National Public Order Intelligence Unit, was a team carrying out identical work largely outside London. Both units have now been disbanded. Only one former officer, Peter Francis, has voluntarily revealed himself. Mr. Francis had not been in any relationships, but he'd been deployed against justice campaigns. He revealed to the Guardian newspaper that the Metropolitan Police had gathered intelligence on the family of Stephen Lawrence, who at the time were campaigning for redress for the botched investigation into the racist murder, end quote. Man, this mess runs deep, okay? To be clear, the Baroness's family has been through it over there, okay? Now, this is just simply some background, some context on who this woman is. So if you didn't catch all of that, she's basically a civil rights leader in the UK. She became that after the Metropolitan Police failed to properly investigate the murder of her son. Out of that group of five or six guys, only two of them have faced any justice in the murder of her son. Now I'm quoting a different article from The Independent. For a mother battling grief, having lost her son to senseless violence, she also faced the darkest elements of the Metropolitan Police head on, and she is still standing. So for many of us, she is Black royalty. Lord Simon Woolley, who sits in the House of Lords with Doreen, told The Independent. For the last 20 years, Doreen has single-handedly become the racial conscious of our society. From her own extreme pain, Doreen has sought not just to challenge the police and the political and democratic system, she also sought to challenge who we are as a nation with the unspoken mantra that we're better than this. 
Now I'm skipping ahead in this article. In 2020, the Met announced that it would not be pursuing any new lines of inquiry in the Stephen Lawrence case. I am truly disappointed that those others who were equally responsible for my son's racist killing may not be brought to justice, Baroness Lawrence responded at the time. Despite this, I would still urge anyone who has information that could help me get all of Stephen's killers convicted to come forward. It is never too late to give a mother justice for the murder of her son. Whilst the Metropolitan Police have given up, I never will. And that's the end quote that I'm taking from that article. So the celebrities that the Mail on Sunday, Daily Mail, Associated Newspapers, allegedly, allegedly, allegedly targeted. That I get because celebrities, you know, they sell papers, right? The more dirt you get, you know, the more papers you sell. Now, why they would target the mother of a teenager who was murdered, a 19-year-old young man who was murdered senselessly, it seems to be, is just awful you know what do they gain by that why do they want to discredit this woman is it because she's calling out injustices i'll say so i think it's common knowledge it's out there that the daily mail is very much a uh, conservative right-wing paper in the uk and they're very much on the side of the tory party now if you don't know the tories in the uk are pretty much the equivalent to, you know, the Republicans in the United States. And the Labour Party in the UK is more akin uh, to the left in the United States, similar to the Democrats. Not the same, but like they're like on the same wavelength. So all of that to say, you know, I'm going to keep an eye on this case. I didn't know, I had never heard of the Baroness and because I had never heard her story told in the United States at all. But what struck me was just how similar the battle is for black mothers who have lost their sons unjustifiably. It's the struggle is the same, it's universal. Now on to some more celebrity news. And all I want to know is, is there a heart in the house tonight? Stand up, stand up. <laughs> and if you know, you know. We have a couple of couples that seem to be on the road to divorce. First up is Tom and Giselle. Now I have an update on them. Like I think a month ago, I had talked about how they were now living in separate houses. This week, Page Six had the exclusive that first Giselle hired a divorce attorney. At first, Tom didn't know what he was going to do. And then by the end of the week, Tom has also retained a divorce lawyer. Now, here's more from Page Six. Quote, I never actually thought this argument would be the end of them, but it looks like it is, one source in the know tells page six. I don't think there will be any coming back now. They both have lawyers and are looking at what a split will entail, who gets what, and what the finances will be, end quote. 
reps for Brady and Bunchkin did not respond to requests for comment. Now the couple share three children, two of which uh, a son and a daughter, 12 year old son, I think the daughter's nine, Giselle is their mother, and then they have been uh, raising with Bridget Moynihan, Tom and Bridget's 15 year old son, Jack. Next on the docket, Tia Mallory files from divorce from husband of 14 years, Corey Hardrick. They have two kids, a son and a daughter, ages 11 and four. Now, if you don't remember Tia Mallory, she is one half of the twin sister duo, Tia and Tamara, and they had an iconic sitcom in the 90s. Here's the theme song. Oh, the song's over. Okay. <laughs> now, Tia is 44. Corey is 42. They have been married for 14 years. That is like a miracle in Hollywood. That's like 40 years in regular life. Tia announced the split on her Instagram. And she says, I have always been honest with my fans. And today is no different. I wanted to share that Corey and I have decided to go our separate ways these decisions are never easy and not without sadness. We will maintain a friendship as we co-parent our beautiful children. I am grateful for all the happy times we had together and want to thank my friends, family, and fans for your love and support as we start this new chapter moving forward in our lives. And that's the end of her statement. I like that she didn't ask for privacy when she released a public statement. Because, come on, you're, not, you're a celebrity, you're probably not going to get privacy. Now, she filed the divorce papers on Tuesday, citing irreconcilable differences, and she also requested the judge to terminate the court's ability to give spousal support to either of them. But she is asking for joint legal and physical custody of the kids, and the couple did have a prenup. Now, Corey has not made an official statement, but he did post the following on his Instagram story. Acting off of emotions will cost you every time, end quote. Now, that's a little cryptic. We don't know who, who he was referring to. It was a subliminal, but we don't know about what, okay? Now, when I checked his Instagram, the day the divorce news hit, he had actually posted a photo of himself on set promoting his show, All-American Homecoming, on The CW, which happens to return this Monday night for season two. It's a sports drama set on the campus of an HBCU. Now, that post was a really smart move on his part. This is really the most publicity he's like ever gotten, to my knowledge. I've never even heard of that show, and it's on season two. But now, you know, millions of people are probably going to Google and see who he is, what's he doing, and find out about his show due to this divorce news. So that was smart of him to promote his show rather than making a statement. Now, there were people being messy in the comment section, I think, of that post. And there were people saying, oh, he cheated. And then he was actually responding to people saying, lies, with an exclamation point. Now, Corey and Tia started dating in 2000. 
That's 22 years ago, y'all. 22 years ago since the year 2000. And like I said earlier, they've been married for 14 years. So they've been together essentially for their entire adult lives. And my question is, like, I mean, are you even the same person that you were at 20? I definitely am not. And I thank God I'm not the same person that I was when I was 20. So while people are trying to say there was infidelity, as people always do, my guess is that they just grew apart. Finally, this last divorce I'm going to cover is one that I missed last week. And this is regarding Mackenzie Scott Bezos. And so who is she, right? So Mackenzie Scott Bezos is Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, his ex-wife. So Mackenzie filed for divorce from her second husband, Dan Jewett, a former science teacher last week in Washington State. Mackenzie is a philanthropist, a big one, and she's a novelist, but she's probably, uh, now I'm going to scratch that. Now, Mackenzie and Jeff Bezos were married for 25 years, and during that time, they built Amazon into the behemoth we know today. Now, in her divorce from Jeff, she got 4% of Amazon stock, which was valued at $38 billion with a B. That's B-I-L-L-I-O-N, $38 billion, okay? Now, Now, not long after her split from Jeff, Mackenzie signed on to the Giving Pledge. Now, it's an initiative started by billionaires for other billionaires who agree to give away half their fortune during their lifetime. Now, so far, Mackenzie has given away $12 billion. And she got divorced in 2019. So she's been quickly giving out a lot of money and helping a lot of organizations. Now, it's on the Giving Pledge's website where people saw hints that there was trouble with Mackenzie and Dan, her second husband, okay? Now, the New York Times is reporting that as recently as last week, um, Dan's letter about giving away their wealth was still on the Giving Pledge website. However, at present, only Mackenzie's letter remains there with her own headshot. There used to be like a selfie of them um, on that website together, but now that's gone. It's just her. Also, Mackenzie had written about the organizations that she that received grants from her on the, the on the website called Medium, and all of her original posts that mentioned Dan have been edited to remove Dan's name, and his name was also removed from her author bio on Amazon, because remember she's also a novelist. So Mackenzie and Dan got married in 2021. So they were only married for, they were married less than two years, okay? And when they tied the knot, he left his teaching job at Lakeside School, which is a prestigious private school in Seattle where Mackenzie's kids, her four children with Jeff, attend. So they go to school there. So her soon-to-be ex-husband Dan used to be her kid's Used to be a teacher at her kid's school. There's no uh, confirmation that her kids were actually in his classes. 
Now, try as I might, I really did some deep searching. I did some Googles. I went on Reddit. I really couldn't find the why behind the divorce. It must be something bad for it to be happening so quickly after the marriage. That's just my speculation. So I don't know what went wrong, but best wishes to the both of them and their next endeavors. And for the best part of this episode, because it's kind of been a downer, we are talking movies, people. The long-anticipated Black Panther sequel, Wakanda Forever, will be in theaters November 11th, and the promo cycle has already begun. First, Marvel released the full-length trailer, which I'm going to play just a portion of it for you right now. Now, if that don't get you hyped, okay. Now, in the trailer, you see Angela Bassett. She returns as Queen Ramonda. She was the Black Panther's mom. Lupita Nyong'o is back as the spy. Nakia, she was the love interest for Black Panther. Letitia Wright is back as Princess Shuri. Not only was she T'Challa's sister, but she was also like the technical genius in the family, building all these like you know, robots and gadgets and stuff. Then Winston Duke returns as the warrior Mabaku and Denai Guerrera, my girl, she is back as the leader of the warriors, Okoye. And I just remember in the first movie, Denai was everything. She had all the charisma, she had all the energy. And in my opinion, she had more chemistry with Chadwick Boseman than Lupita. Yes, I said it, but that is neither here nor there. So the promo cycle for Wakanda Forever is in full swing and the director and cast are out doing interviews. So Ryan Coogler, he is both the writer and the director of the first movie and the sequel that's coming out. He spoke to Entertainment Weekly. Now, the movie was rewritten to address the death of T'Challa, the original Black Panther, as portrayed by Chadwick Boseman, who died in 2020 after privately battling cancer. And when he died, the world was shocked because no one even knew he was sick. He was only 42. And a few months before he passed, I think he appeared on TV looking like really thin. And like people online were just criticizing him for being so skinny, not knowing that he had terminal cancer. And that's why people need to quit making fun of people's appearances because you don't know what someone is going through. So for all y'all smart mouths out there, just close your mouth. But I digress. Now back to Ryan Coogler's interview. And from here, I'm quoting the Entertainment Weekly article. 
I had to find a way that I felt like I could keep going in a way that our Black Panther family could keep going, Kugler explains. I started to come up with a film that had elements of the film that we had just finished writing, but also applied the themes that the people who were hurting just as much as me could actually perform and execute and come out on the other side whole. The trailer begins by juxtaposing shots of Wakanda and a new world, the underwater kingdom of Talokan. It's ruled over by the powerful leader Namor, making his Marvel Cinematic Universe debut. Instead of ruling over Atlantis, as he does in the comics, Namor of Wakanda Forever hails from a new kingdom called Talokan, created for the film and inspired by ancient Mayan culture. It's a distinct nation with its own long history, but Kugler notes several key similarities between Talokan and Wakanda, describing both as sort of El Dorado, an advanced civilization hiding in plain sight. I think this film has the fog of loss over it, and anamorphic lenses warp the image a little bit, he explains. Sometimes when you go through profound loss, it can warp how you look at the world. This is what I'm talking about. I love artistry and how subtle changes like a camera lens can just create an aesthetic, a mood, a point of view. The sequel also introduces a new character played by one of my favorite actresses to watch, Michaela Cole. She's 35, she's from East London, but her parents are from Ghana, so she's Ghanaian. Michaela last year won a BAFTA, which is like the British Oscars, and a Primetime Emmy for her HBO limited series, I May Destroy You, that she both wrote and I think executive produced. I discovered her work when Netflix ran her first show that she made, Chewing Gum, a project that she also wrote and produced. Homegirl is just brilliant. She's a genius. She's very quirky, and I relate to that so much. Anyway, she made the November cover of U.S. Vogue. Now that is a big deal in and of itself. I might even buy a copy because I don't even like Vogue like that, but I want to support my girl. Okay. Now on the cover, she's wearing like this bright yellow Gucci dress. It's long sleeved. It has like a keyhole neckline and like her arms have like these huge like pink flowers. I know it sounds crazy, but it looks good on the cover. Um, it's a look and I like it. The Vogue profile is also really good. You see in the article that like she, there's a photo of her with her dad and her grandma in Ghana and they mention how she was the first black person ever to join her high school's Irish dancing team and uh, and they talk about how she took control of her career. I'm reading from the Vogue piece. Cole has had a lot of practice in setting professional boundaries and trusting her instincts. To maintain ownership of her work, she famously walked away from a $1 million deal with Netflix in 2017 to make what would become I May Destroy You, the earth-shattering BAFTA and Emmy Award-winning drama based on her experience of sexual assault. She also severed ties with her talent agency that year, who she claims had pressured her to sign that deal. It was the BBC who agreed to give her full creative control and rights for the show, with HBO signing on as a co-producer. No is the only power you really have in this industry. That's the only way to carve a path, says her friend Donald Glover. Michaela can really do anything she wants, have any role she wants. She means a lot because of the choices she's made, and I don't think she takes those choices lightly. I'm skipping ahead to where they talk about the film, still quoting the Vogue piece. 
For the actor, joining the ensemble cast was a wish fulfilled. She'd been one of the many young hopefuls who auditioned for the first Black Panther movie while she was still a student at the Guildhall Drama School in London. I think for a lot of people, it was the first time we'd seen some sort of representation on a very mainstream platform about the magic of Africa, the magic of the people, our ancestors, she says. Coming here, you do feel something magical. The writer of the piece also spoke to Ryan Coogler, the director. He knew Michaela would be great in the role. He spotted her at the premiere of the first Black Panther in 2018. Unbeknownst to Cole, director Ryan Coogler already had his eye on her, and he noticed how easily she mingled with cast members. Anika, the character Michaela plays, is kind of a rebel, says Coogler. It made a lot of meta sense with Michaela being someone who is pushing the industry forward and carving out her own space. You can read the entire piece on Vogue's website. Again, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever debuts November 11th. Now let me go get my ticket. Who will be the next James Bond? I feel like once a month we get an article about this. I'm tired of hearing about it, but I'm bringing it up this time because at least there's a new angle to it. So this past week, October 5th was Bond Day, and I think it's also the 60th anniversary of the franchise. Now, Deadline spoke to the film franchise's producer, Michael G. Wilson. He runs the entire thing along with Barbara Broccoli. They have not yet started the casting process for the new Bond, but he did drop some hints about what they're looking for. The rest is from the Deadline article. However, he did reveal that younger actors are out of the running. We've tried looking at younger people in the past, but trying to visualize it doesn't work. Remember, Bond's already a veteran. He's had some experience. He's a person who has been through the wars, so to speak. He's probably been in the SAS or something. He isn't some kid out of high school that you can bring in and start off. That's why it works for a 30-something. And now I feel old. Last month... Idris Elba once again has said he has no desire to play James Bond and that it is not a career goal of his. So interviewers, journalists, please stop asking this man this question. Idris Elba as Bond is not going to happen, okay? Now, another name circulating is Reggae Jean Page, the black romantic lead from season one of Bridgerton on Netflix that like everyone went nuts for. Now, he's got the buzz, and he's pretty to look at, but I don't think that he's an acting heavyweight, at least from what I've seen from him so far. But let me drop some real tea for you, okay? Now, as you know, James Bond is a book character created by Sir Ian Fleming. Fleming wrote a series of spy novels featuring James Bond, and these books came out in the 50s. What you've never heard, and this is the T, what you have never heard is that the real life man who is Fleming's inspiration, at least believed to be, for James Bond is a black Dominican diplomat named Purifiro Ruby Rosa. Forbes has an article about Ruby Rosa, which I'm quoting. Besides being a Dominican diplomat, Porfirio was an international polo champion race car driver, and pilot. He was a renowned Casanova who was married five times to women, including Barbara Hutton and Doris Duke. 
He spoke five languages and twice became the wealthiest man in the world. There's an entire documentary podcast on this subject called Ruby Rosa. It is so good. Christopher Rivas, the host, he explains all of the parallels between Bond, the character, and Ruby Rosa, the real man. It's really worth the listen. I bring this up because you know if the producers pick a Black James Bond, a certain segment of the population will melt down, just like they're doing over Ariel being Black. However, if this were to happen, if they were to choose a Black or Brown James Bond, the producers would simply just be nodding to the source material. So act like you know. Last weekend, Hocus Pocus 2 was released on Disney+. Plus. Now, when the first movie came out in 1993, I was not allowed to watch movies with witchcraft in them, so I never saw it. Then last year, I realized that I was old enough to watch whatever I wanted, so I went ahead and I watched the original Hocus Pocus. And it was okay. I probably would have liked it more when I was 10. I watched the sequel last weekend and I enjoyed it much more. Now, this is a spoiler-free version of the plot. In a nutshell, after some trickery, the Sanderson sisters are back in Salem and they're out to settle an old score. We see a new group of teens and how they deal with the chaos. Now, Bette Midler, her performance made the film for me. Her acting was impeccable. I feel like the script also did give her character more to work with. And we do get the origin story of the Sanderson sisters, which I think is rewarding for the viewers. Overall, I'd give the Hocus Pocus 2 four out of five stars. Thank you for joining me for this episode of I Must Discuss. I'll be back on Tuesday recapping episode eight of House of the Dragon. And I have a bit of news. We've got email, so you can now send your questions, comments, or recommendations to I Must Discuss Podcast at gmail.com. That's I Must Discuss Podcast at gmail.com. Also, follow us on Instagram at I Must Discuss Podcast. And guess what? You can leave a voicemail too. The link is in the episode description. And finally, if you want to show me some support, please leave a five-star rating on your podcast app and a written review. We've got a new one this week. The listener says, So dope. I'm loving the flow of your podcast. The info in your voice is perfection. Proud of this. No, your perfection. Thank you so much. Now, until next time, I'm Angela Taylor.